trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and welcome back to Access to Excellence, and we're thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Heidi Lawrence, a professor of English from within George Mason University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Professor Lawrence has done some fabulous research that shows how rhetoric influences the vaccination debate. Her research has drawn a lot of attention as of late and lets us know that language is clearly the biggest obstacle we have in fighting vaccine deniers more so than any science problem. Dr. Lawrence's book is on the vaccine controversy. Vaccine Rhetorics is now available from the Ohio State University Press. Heidi, welcome to Access Excellence. Thank you so much, John. Well, let's jump right into it. First of all, can you tell our listeners just what exactly your research is about and how you define rhetoric? Lots of people talk about it, you heard about it. What exactly does rhetoric mean? Yes, yeah, so rhetoric is oftentimes a sort of fraught term because it has a kind of public connotation and then a different scholarly one. So the public connotation we think of is rhetoric as kind of fluffy things, things that aren't real. So you'll hear in the news, two talking heads, and one person says, well, we have a plan and the other guy just has a bunch of rhetoric. So it's sort of false or fake or unreal things. The scholarship on rhetoric goes back thousands of years all the way to Aristotle. So Aristotle and Plato kind of famously duked it out a little bit on the nature of <laughs> rhetoric and what it was. And uh, among other sort of origins for rhetoric, but that's kind of where I my scholarly starting point begins. So I always work from the Aristotle's definition of rhetoric, which I find most accurate, which is rhetoric is the art of seeing in any situation the available means of persuasion. And so it's significant about that definition is it's not the art of persuading, and it's not just the art of getting someone to do what you want them to do, but rather this ability to look in situations for what is happening through language and how to change something moving forward. So it's that ability to assess, analyze, and understand a situation and respond appropriately in order to achieve a mutually beneficial outcome or just ends, and that justice and ethics are an important component of that as well. So in thinking about rhetoric as it relates to something like vaccination or something like that's going on in the public sphere, it's about really understanding what's going on. What do people believe? What are they thinking? What are they saying? What are they doing? And how can we work together through language to find more just and agreeable ends? Why is it so important to talk about this vaccination debate in those terms? And how is it you became so involved in it? Yeah, so I started this research in 2010 in the midst of the 2009-2010 H1N1 outbreak. So that sort of started happening in the fall. And there was a new vaccine that was just for H1N1 flu that year, and there was a lot of public resistance to it. And so I started supporting a project at Virginia Tech where I was a graduate student at the time trying to understand why people were concerned. And what we saw instantly was that there was a lot of, there was a very wide range of concerns about the vaccine, about the existing flu vaccine, about the H1N1 flu, a lot of myths and legends and things that were circulating that were beyond just the stuff that kind of rose to the level of national attention in the media or even in big surveys that public health researchers were doing. And so being a humanist and being someone who's in an English department, I have a different kind of set of questions when I look at something. I want to know what the outliers have to say. 
say. I'm not necessarily interested in what everyone has to say about something or the biggest groups of people and what they're concerned about. I'm interested in the full spectrum. I realized through that project that that was what the issue as a whole was missing. It was missing someone to sort of go through and say, okay, yeah, some people have these concerns, but what's going on with this issue overall? What are all of the available means of persuasion? What's happening in patient-doctor interactions that's making this so fraught? What's happening online that is giving people concerns that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise? What's happening even in mommy and me playgroups as parents talk about this issue? And how are different concerns being sort of spread across the sphere? And how are those things continuing the debate? How are they furthering controversy? How are they making discord even more viral and more vociferous in certain circumstances? And what are our spaces where persuasion can happen? So that was really what motivated me to say, hey, wait a minute, like, let's crack this open a little bit. And let's look at some more people and to see what they have to say. The whole issue of vaccinations have always been a difficult subject to talk with patients. And the ones who have been skeptical have been very, very hard to convince. How do you explain this dynamic and what options in your research have you found that could possibly help? Yeah, so one of the things that I really try to emphasize when I talk to anybody about this topic is understanding the scope of the problem. So first, that vaccination controversy doesn't just date to 1998 in the Wakefield study. It actually dates to the beginning of the practice that there have been various forms of vaccination controversy that emerged in the 19th century, that emerged throughout the 20th century. And so I think sometimes people operate out of a kind of hopeful, imaginative past where everyone loved vaccines and then all of a sudden the internet came along and Wakefield came along and no one liked them anymore. And that's really not how it (laughs) happened and that's not how it unfolded. And for those perspectives, you know, there's been some amazing work in the social sciences and in history and in some great work that other researchers in vaccination have done to kind of complicate this idea that we used to be really accepting of vaccines and we aren't anymore. And so that kind of shifts the dynamic rather than seeing it as like, oh, these are some new people who have come along who are screwing everything up. No, it's a part of a historical trajectory. This is actually a practice that we've always had questions about. And there are some reasons for that. We give them to children primarily, which are a protected group of people. We love children. We don't want to make them sick. We don't want to hurt them on accident. Parents tend to be a little protective of their children, right? So that's pretty normal for parents to be concerned about that. You're also giving them to healthy people to prevent something. And that's significant as well, right? Very infrequently did we go to the doctor with no symptoms and get prescribed something, right? That's not really how it works. We're sick and we're trying to get something to be better in some way. And so that's a very different dynamic to that medication as well. And then finally, ultimately, vaccinations, even if they are very scientifically powerful and medically powerful, they're also a democratic public object, right? The rubber meets the road with vaccines when kids start going to school, because in order to be in school, you have to be vaccinated. That's kind of where a lot of tension ends up happening, where kids who might have lagged behind have to catch up or they have to get exemptions and things like that. And it's a it's policy. And so we argue about policy. So not to say that vaccines are a problem or they're not effective or safe or anything. I don't think any of those things. I think they're safe and effective. But conversation, discourse, and concern about them is actually pretty normal. And if you kind of renormalize, materialize them and say, actually, no, it's, it's pretty okay to have this question. I'm going to answer it to the best of my ability. I'm going to look for other means to persuade you if you're not necessarily on board. Those are okay. It's not necessarily a sign that you're some kind of crazy person, that you are <laughs> um, that you are lazy or trying to um, freeload off of all the vaccinators in your community, that you're ignorant or stupid, that you believe Jenny McCarthy is more reliable 
than a doctor. It's not necessarily a sign of those kind of deficit things, but rather it's a quite normal part of historically what happens with vaccinations and then also just a part of how we live in society. So I try to start there to sort of say questions about vaccines aren't necessarily abnormal, but what has really fueled the problem is how we respond to those questions and how everyone's responding to them. And that's what makes people dig in. That's what makes persuasion difficult. And so that's the place where we kind of need to fix things because that's where we get into trouble. So just to be clear in your research, you're not as much taking sides in this argument as much as you're hoping to clearly illustrate just how important rhetoric is in this debate. Does that sound right? Yes. My my goal is absolutely to see how all sides come together and how we can move forward in shared productive mechanisms moving forward. What can happen a lot of times for parents and doctors is the vaccination conversation can result in a breakdown of trust. It can result in a breakdown. And not just parents and doctors, it can happen among parents, online, in person, and it doesn't have to be that way. So I think taking sides is not what I'm a, I'm interested in as much as looking at situations and looking to see where language and communication changes could happen to kind of clarify and streamline things. Well, Heidi, the, the science is clear that vaccines do not cause autism, yet so many people remain unconvinced. How would you explain the disconnect? Yes. So the autism situation is interesting. So yes, there are some people who remain unconvinced about autism and vaccination, but this is another important part of the issue to understand is that the autism vaccines concern is a very, very small part of the big kind of mosaic of concerns that parents have about vaccines and patients have about vaccines. We talk a lot about childhood vaccination, but adults are concerned about flu vaccine and and senior citizens are concerned about their vaccines too. So everyone has these concerns. But MMR autism is is just one sort of very small sliver. There's a big group of people, for example, who are concerned about the efficacy of the flu vaccine and its variability from year to year and, and whether or not the risks outweigh the benefits. So that's one set of concerns there. There's concern about quantity of vaccines and toxic overload or children getting too many vaccines all in the same appointment. Again, there's a lot of science that establishes that that's completely safe. But again, that felt reality of being having a two-month-old baby and having him or her injected with lots of vaccines over and over again can be really difficult for parents. And so that's, a again, that sort of natural concern out of being worried about your children. There are concerns about very rare but yet under-acknowledged side effects or adverse events that occur. There's a very vocal group of people who claim that actually there are lots of things that happen as a result of vaccines that just go underreported or underacknowledged. And so there's there's that kind of concern. So to look at MMR and autism or even vaccines and autism and say, like, why is that the problem? It misses the point a little bit to think, mm-hmm. well, we've disproven that. So why isn't everyone just convinced now? Well, that's because they've kind of moved past that concern. So we need to sort of keep talking uh, across the aisle, keep talking with people with concerns, find out what the concerns really are in order to work on persuading them otherwise or to convincing them or talking to them about their safety concerns. So one of the worst things that can happen is a parent goes into the consultation and says, hey, I have some questions. Do we really need to do this booster of of hep B today? And the doctor says, stop it. Vaccines don't cause autism. You're fine. I'm going to leave now. The the nurse is going to come in and vaccinate your baby. And that that's a mismatch, right? That person might not be thinking about autism at all. They might be thinking about rare case of encephalitis or or just the general necessity of hep B in a two-month-old. Like that might be something that they're wondering about. And so when we kind of use MMR and autism or vaccines and autism as the kind of catch-all for all concerns, it makes it sort of just the parent feel dismissed and not understood and their real concerns are never actually addressed. So mm-hmm. you've missed lots of opportunities there. So 
what I like to say to that is, yes, vaccines don't cause autism. That's proven. That's great. Have that research at the ready for when someone expresses it, but know that most people's concerns go way beyond that. You know, one thing I've noticed in your research that everybody talks about the thoughts and concerns of the anti-vaxxers, but you talk to the doctors as well. How important is that to really see the other side as well? Yes, very much. So the the kind of, if I can talk to the book a little bit, um, the main <laughs> argument that the book nice puts plug. forward, yes, <laughs> the book, um, Vaccine Rhetorics, um, is... Uh, Available is, at Ohio State Press. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the main theory the book puts forward is a theory of material exigence, and that is very meaningful to scholars in rhetoric, but no one else probably cares. But the idea there is understanding everyone's reality and everyone's reason for speaking as real within their perspective. Doctors are responding to a real concern about disease. It may be very easy for the average person to see something like mumps as an aberration, as, well, yeah, I guess some people get that, or they used to get that back in the 60s, but what's mumps? Who cares about mumps? But doctors, that's not necessarily their experience. They're saying, no, 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 mumps is real. (laughs) Mumps could happen. Your child could be sterilized. You could have really serious consequences. There could be some lifelong effects of having that kind of disease. And that's forefront for a doctor in the exact same way that the parent might be thinking, why does my baby need a hep B shot at two months old? That's that's not a disease at which she is at risk. So it was important to me to talk to doctors to start to get a sense of, well, what are their chief concerns? What's forefront for them in these conversations? What are they really responding to? And exigence speaks to what we want to change in the situation. What's changed moving forward? The doctor wants to change the risk of mumps or change the risk of measles or change the risk of a child who's maybe had a recent transplant, who's sitting in the waiting room with a child who has the symptoms of mumps, but the parent doesn't know that, right? And then that disease could be fatal for that child or whatever it is. So understanding what's kind of forefront at the concern of people across the spectrum of of the issue was really important to me and continues to be important to me as a part of the research. Understanding pro-vaccine parents is just as important as understanding skeptical parents. And really, lots of parents have skepticisms that don't necessarily refuse vaccines, but they're concerned, they have worries, they want to talk about it. And so it's, it's really important to talk to all voices, again, part of understanding the available means of persuasion across the whole situation. Right. So basically, we have both sides, the anti-vaxxers, no parents want their kids to have all measles or any of those diseases. Right, right. And no doctors want to see young children catch those diseases. So everybody wants the same thing, but just communication is just preventing us from getting getting there together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, and and the communication problem could then be causing other problems down the line. So again, and many parents will say, okay, I went into the doctor with concerns. They weren't really addressed. I vaccinated anyways. And actually doctors will tell this too. I, I interviewed one doctor who had a, a had a practice that changed while he was there to being a vaccinate or leave practice. Vaccinate or leave practices are exactly what they sound like. You either agree to vaccinate on schedule or you have to leave the practice. And, and their practice instituted this policy. And he said most parents were like, okay, okay, fine, I guess we'll just get up to date. Some were a little bit more difficult, some a lot left. But there's one parent he'd worked with her for years. She had many kids go through his practice. They had a great longstanding relationship and she really didn't want to vaccinate. And he had to force her to do it. I mean, he was like, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. And in our interview, he talked a lot about how he felt really uncomfortable with that experience where he was making someone do something that they were really uncomfortable and nervous about. 
you don't know the long-term consequences of forcing that parent to do that thing. Yes, they might end up becoming compliant, but then that's kind of a breach of trust. That's a breach of, of the mutual respect that's supposed to exist in the doctor-patient relationship. And so then the next time that doctor prescribes an antibiotic, is that parent going to fill the prescription? Are they going to use as directed? Are they really going to trust that doctor has what's in their child's best interest in mind? Or are they now thinking, well, really, he's just sort of an advocate for these policies, irrespective of what I want and what my ch- what's best for my child? So it can be damaging. And doctors sure. are just as worried about that. Many are. And public health officials, everyone's worried about that. And everyone's attuned to it. But finding the right balance, finding how to move forward with good practices and policies is a big part of the question. You touched earlier about false information. Of course, the 1998 Wakefield study is you know number one on the list. That has since been thoroughly debunked. But yet a lot of anti-vaxxers still cling to that as, hey, look, this is what we're talking about. What can be done about this damaging cognitive dissonance that's going on? That defense of Andrew Wakefield does tend to get articulated by your sort of those people way on the spectrum of much more fervent anti-vaxxers. And I would say that it's kind of not worth addressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are people who very much support him and will defend him. There are people who rally for him, say that he was set up and things like that. And I think that it's almost an argument not worth having, especially if you're in an interpersonal conversation or you're in a one-on-one or you're even, you're a doctor trying to talk with that parent or a public health person trying to talk with that community, try to get to the heart of the real concern. Okay, so you think all these things about Andrew Wakefield. Okay, that's that's fine and you're welcome to think those things. What are the concerns specifically you have about the vaccine? What are the short-term concerns or the long-term concerns? How can we work together to maybe keep this conversation going? The more you're talking, the more opportunities you have for persuasion or for moving the needle a little bit are more likely to keep the lines of communication open. I think as long as you're talking and as long as you're in deliberation and in discourse, you have at least a chance of continuing to move it forward. In that first conversation, in that first one-off, no. There's no piece of evidence that is going to convince someone who genuinely believes Andrew Wakefield was set up that that didn't happen. That's So don't even try that. <laughs> try, <laughs> try something a little bit more incremental. And this is what the public health practitioners I interviewed for my book say, is that keeping open lines of communication, keeping open lines of trust, even with the most ardent anti-vax communities is incredibly important because in the event of an emergency, in the event of an outbreak, in the event that something happens, you want them to still seek you out. You still want people in systems because that is what's going to protect the community as a whole. So kind of maybe just moving past the thing that you're like, I don't I don't know, we're not going to see eye to eye on that, but let's keep this line of communication open. That's at least going to lead you to the possibility of persuasion at some right. point. You've suggested that healthcare providers develop approaches in three areas to best counter the vaccine skepticism. There's situations, exigencies, and things versus objects. Can you tell our listeners a little, little bit about each approach and why they might be effective? Yes. So this kind of speaks to the material exigence theory of the book. And so it really points to a couple of different practices than what we do as a standard kind of approach now. So it's looking at the particular rather than the general. So again, developing questioning practices in one-on-one situations that open up and move toward deliberation and understanding rather than judgment and change, that's a really important starting point. So for practices, this could be things like having open community town 
town halls where parents can come and ask questions of doctors in low-stakes environments, sending out more frequent forms of communication, having parent advocates or kind of community-level support who can help circulate messaging in, again, less sort of charged environments. Those types of things can help. But really, it starts with understanding what the real concerns are, rather than just assuming that everyone is uneducated and think that vaccines cause autism and trying to debunk that. What are the real concerns? How can we how can we shape that? Or how can we understand that? And then that that reframes the situations in which we have the conversations. Again, thinking about things beyond just a doctor-patient interaction, exigencies, thinking about what can be changed, thinking about incremental change and relationship building and trust building rather than I want everyone in my practice vaccinated by the end of the year or I want everyone in this school up to date by the end of the year or something like that. Really thinking you might achieve that, but you might achieve that at the expense of longer term engagement with the health system or um, trust in doctors, which could be damaging in bigger ways. Things versus objects sort of speaks to uh, theories of materiality and rhetoric and really thinking about how people can see and interact with things differently. So things have a range of stability. And so for doctors, again, they might look at the vaccine and say, this is very stably an intervention that prevents disease, and therefore it must be administered to everyone who can get it. And that might be a very uncomplicated conclusion, but not everyone is going to reach that conclusion. There are going to be other ways of looking at it, and objects are going to operate with less stability depending on the situation. So just understanding that that's a part of it, that that's, again, not a sign of deficit, not a sign of ignorance, but just a part of how things are. And so if we kind of let go of some of those concerns about changing people immediately and getting them less stupid and and rather <laughs> bringing them in and saying, what do you really think? And how can we talk about that? That's a reapproach of the situation. So you mean insulting people actually doesn't help? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. Keith, tell us a little bit how you about your research, how long it took you to compile it, and what are some of the challenges you faced oh, along the yes. way? <laughs> yeah. So I started the research again in 2010, and it's now 2020. So 10 full years. Part of that was my dissertation research. I did most of my physician interviews as a part of my dissertation research and public health interviews. And then I did some more interviews and survey work here at Mason with our amazingly generous students who took their time. So a big thanks if I can give it to anyone who answered a survey on the flu in the last five or six years, you probably answered my flu survey. So thank you. So it's been a long time coming using a lot of different methods, qualitative methods are primarily what I use, but different types of modes of analysis. I've worked with a wide range of collaborators in different places. And so it's it's been a really great process. I've learned everything um, in the course of it, but it was certainly really challenging trying to trying to really see things from other people's perspectives is really hard or trying to sort of sit in a space as a researcher where you're not judging you're just sort of holding space for the person to tell you their story whether that's a doctor who's like yes I happily kicked out all these patients from my practice because they're a bunch of stupid (laughs) idiots and I'm sitting there going okay you know tell me more about that or whether it's I mean I've had lots of conversations with people across the sphere that I go Okay, that's how you see the world. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really grateful for it because it it teaches me something every time. Um, And the more I can sort of be open to that, the more I learn and the more I think everyone learns. So so those there have been a lot of challenges along the way and it's been a long time coming. So I'm really happy to see everything kind of coming to fruition. And I do hope that the book is and the the rest of my work is is a helpful resource to anyone, parents, doctors, anyone looking for another approach and feeling like they need a new set of tools 
schools. That's, that's my ultimate goal. Finally, do you think this line of reasoning could be effective in uh, other fields? Heck, maybe we should try it in politics. <laughs> right, <yes. laughs> I, I know, yeah. Being open would be probably Listening really to people, listening. not insulting I mean, people. Who would have Sound thought, pretty good. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, well, so I'm, I'm a part of a discipline sort of broadly in the medical humanities called the Rhetorics of Health and Medicine or Rhetoric of Health and Medicine. And yes, our field's entire sort of approach is thinking, well, okay, how does language inscribe certain ways of understanding problems and their solution across and solutions across medicine? How can it be used to better understand people's perspectives and lived experiences? How can we, again, crack open these standard understandings and expectations and assumptions we make about people in power, people out of power, people with diseases and without them and all these things to try and say, hey, here's this group of people experiencing this problem. How can we use language to find a new solution or find a new way of understanding it? And so for my own work, I'm working now with a large team of collaborators across Virginia on a project on opioids. So our hope and our objective in that project is to bring these tools to another kind of large, massive issue that's happening where there are people trying to do a lot of good on all sides, but are in many ways not meeting community needs or are, are leaving some patients in the wake or are frustrating doctors. You know, there's sort of a lot of resonances across those projects, even though they're obviously very different in terms of how they've unfolded. So I, I think the hope there is through that project and other ones that are happening across the field that this better understanding of language and the particularities of experience will be useful um, in solving problems. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, that will wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. We want to thank Dr. Heidi Lawrence for her time. And we wish her nothing but the best in the future ahead. Until next time. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.